Welcome to RFB. I Art New York. It's our fourth segment brought to you by hosts uh, Isabella Gola and Rebecca Major. My name is Isabella and I'm a visual artist and independent curator. I work for the Polish Cultural Institute New York. Rebecca Major is a visual artist studying masters in art history at Hunter College. And today we are going to do a comparative analysis of two huge retrospectives. That's Nary Ward, We the People, at the New Museum, which features over 30 sculptures, paintings, videos, and large-scale installations from Ward's 25-year career. And the survey exhibition of Frida Kahlo, Appearances Can Be deceiving at the Brooklyn Museum. I would like to pass on the mic to Rebecca Major uh, with the first take on the Brooklyn Museum Frida Kahlo's retrospective, which do we actually call it a retrospective? Hmm, good question. Um, well, I, I will read you kind of abbreviated and edited version of the text from the Brooklyn Museum. Frida Kahlo appearances can be deceiving is up through May 12th is the first exhibition in the United States to display a collection of her clothing and other personal possessions. They are displayed alongside paintings, drawings, photographs, related historical films and ephemera, as well as works from the Brooklyn Museum's holdings of Mesoamerican art. The examples of Kahlo's personal artifacts in the exhibit, which have been stored in the Casa Azul, translated as the Blue House, her longtime Mexico City home are intended to shed a new light on her crafted personal and public appearance and identity, which reflect her cultural heritage and political beliefs while also ad addressing her physical disabilities. I think that's quite accurate, actually. And it's funny because I didn't read the um, description prior to going to the exhibition. And so I just kind of assumed that it was a a comprehensive survey of her paintings and artworks, which it really is not, we we discovered. Right. And yeah, um, we counted like how many paintings? Like 10? 10, uh, 10 or 11. And they were very lost within, uh, they were sort of like just kind of diffused the importance of them. They were shoved in a corner. They were in interim spaces between the, the bulk of narrative of the ephemera about Kahlo's, yeah, I mean, uh, I felt life. like they wanted to spread out the, the small amount of artworks that they did have. They didn't put them in one room. They kind of spread it out among this, this plethora of other artifacts, essentially, or ephemera. Um, well, you know, Frida Kahlo did not make huge paintings, but there were of her large paintings, which are more like 36 inches by... Yeah, 24 well, inches. Those are like, standard, the, like you those know, are her larger painting. pieces. So there were Sorry. two two of those. One is the, the monkeys, the three monkeys. And the other one, she's in a pink dress. And they had the dress that she wore when she painted that self-portrait next to the painting. Right. So there were so those just, two large masterpieces of yes, hers. And, and then there was two fruit paintings. And then there were smaller self-portraits. It's kind of scattered about the rest of the exhibition. One of them was another very important work of hers where she um, has cut her hair and she's um, seated in a chair and she's wearing men's clothing. Uh, that's the but that, you know, it really was not um, a show about her artwork, although they did have a few drawings, which I thought were interesting because I'd never really seen her drawings. But again, a few pieces. And it even had... A facsimile. They call it a facsimile, which is basically a reproduction. It's a Xerox. It's a color Xerox. They had color Xeroxes of drawings of hers, two examples of that. I'm like, what? Why would you do that? Like, don't just don't even have it here. Like, you're not you're displaying a photocopy. Yeah. I just and I went to the the wall text. I'm like, it says simile. Like that's what they're like. Yeah, I thought that was a huge disservice that's done to the legacy of her work and what she represented with her life and um, her identities as an artist. The self portrait with cropped hair was from 1940, uh, which depicts her as the androgynous being a weeping woman, which is a quote from a Mexican ballad La Lorna. And she did that portrait after her splitting with her husband. 
Diego Rivera. It's great. Well, it's funny because they only separated several times. They only officially divorced for one year between 1939 and 1940. Yeah, that's right. And it's funny how she was always perceived by the media sources as the sort of exoticized decorative addition to or enrichment of Diego Rivera's Mm -hmm. huge, extensive career. There was an article about her, and the title is uh, something to the effect of Diego Rivera's wife gleefully dabbles in painting. (laughs) That's right. And uh, when he had his solo exhibition at MoMA, I think somewhere in the 40s, but she's quoted as Frida, Diego's beautiful wife. She wears native costumes, tight-bodied full-skirt dress, and that was her role. Uh, Nothing about her own art practice. But then again, there is a note on her paintings at Julian Levy Gallery in the press release for her show there at 1938. That was a New York City gallery. She was quoted in the press release that she was actually decidedly important and even threatens the laurels of her distinguished husband. So in that press release from 1938, She's quoted as threatening his legacy or his uh, uh, tradition. Yeah. And I, I didn't write that quote down, but in one of the uh, wall texts on the one of the works in the show, she says something to the effect of the child. She refers to Diego, her husband, as the child. She almost had like this inner knowledge that she would end up somehow being the more important painter. Interesting quote, though, by Diego of of her was that he said she's the only artist who tore open her chest to express the biological truth of feeling. So I don't think that this was an antagonistic relationship. Clearly. I mean, of course they were known to uh, be unfaithful to each other and I'm sure there were ensuing arguments about that, but I think they definitely supported each other. And in a way she, you know, fed into the, his legacy as the important painter and being the beautiful wife. But I think it was reciprocal. I mean, I think that she wanted to be around this man who was a painter and fed her uh, support. Um, I think he was the breadwinner, so to speak. And, and I think she struggled to become financially independent in her lifetime through her art. Um, although she came from, from an intellectual family. But that said, I, I think that she still struggled for financial independence in her lifetime. And I think there was a kind of symbiotic relationship of, of uh, artistic support between them. And I think it was acknowledged, uh, you know, by, by some critics and, and Diego Rivera himself. And uh, well, that painting, uh, The Love Embrace of the Universe, the Earth, uh, which was uh, referring Mexico and Diego from that that's 1949 and that's that's after they got back together um, I guess years later but that's it's based on the yin and yang and the cosmology uh, you know of like you know the the back and forth and the harmony of you know the sexes but she's comparing to this portrait that it's in the first room self-portrait mm-hmm. as Tejuana or Diego on my mind from 1943, where she's wearing a, you know, a stretched resplendor headdress with a painted portrait of Diego Rivera on her forehead. That recalls the Mexican genre of crowned nun portraits, Mm -hmm. which, you know, depicts nuns taking the veil and becoming betrothed to Jesus. So I think that there is a stark difference and there's just few years between the paintings. Mm -hmm. Um, only like uh, you know few few years uh three years actually and uh, it's starkly different with you know her you know the the male figure being like tattooed on her forehead to the male figure of the worshipped role model yeah and it's funny because i assumed that that was an earlier painting maybe from their first marriage to each other. But yeah, 1943 would have been, way, you know, many years into their second marriage. 
because they divorced for a year and they remarried mm-hmm. in 1940. So I, when I looked at that painting, I thought, oh, young love or something. Yes, because, right. But it wasn't. She almost maybe had the kind of, I don't, wouldn't say this word too lightly, but like schizophrenic relationship to this concept of marriage. Like sometimes maybe she adored him and then sometimes... She felt trapped by the marriage. I don't know who can tell really exactly, but yeah. The one um, thing they didn't have in that ephemera collection was her um, diary, if she ever kept one. Right. They had um, other things like the book of poems by Walt Whitman and the rag doll that she made herself, uh, even Revlon makeup items and perfume. And I wonder if like, the, the perfume was by Coco Chanel, and I wonder if those were sponsors. No, but Revlon did sponsor. Oh, mm. so mm. They, <laughs> great. <laughs> did your research on that. I, yeah, that's. I think that's ethically problematic right here. Mm-hmm. What do you think? But yeah, the memoirs would be much more interesting to consider rather. But uh, the, the costumes themselves, which were part of her um, life and performance and sort of statement. I felt they were more uh, coming from a place of identity as a female, as, um, you know, a Mexican artist. Mm -hmm. And and she was really proud of her heritage. Yeah. In fact, that was really positive. And and this 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 bridal uh, gown that was right next to you know, the uh, self-portrait as a Tijuana. I felt it was, it was really rendering the crowned nun, you know, portraits, but that's like one of her performance acts, I feel, that she did in, in real life. That's when the art and life sort of blends in her legacy as an artist, mm-hmm. because she really made this political statement, you know, with, with the outfits and the mm-hmm. jewelry and quoting and even holding um, uh, small figurines, which were small uh, Mexican ceramics, and she would hold them as if they were fetishes. So she would enact a role of a Madonna, of a um, of an icon that comes from you know from the visuals that were rendering uh, the cultural heritage of of Mexico, of Mexican mm-hmm. tradition, and the indigenous you know Mexican culture and i think that's that well it's a folk was, culture it's um yeah and that was misunderstood by you know as exotic something exotic but i think it was the the, the very true identity of her her mother was a roman catholic so her uh, and her father was um german jewish and he was a photographer as well which i guess where she got her artistic leanings but her mother was uh roman catholic which was the predominant religion in the town where, I mean, in the city where she grew up, which is a suburb south of Mexico city named Cayoe Can. Yes, I totally agree. She donned these dresses that almost made her appear as if she stepped out of those votive paintings that she right. admired. That she enacted the a Madonna. Votive paintings. And, um, but they also had a practical use, which was that, the long dresses hid her disability. She had um, she had suffered polio as a child at the age of six, which had left her with a weak leg and I th- believe a slight limp. But then, of course, we all know of her famous accident at age 18, which fractured her hip and spine, uh, which further... You know, disabled her. Immobilized her. Yeah, and her, her dress her um, helped mask these um issues you know physical issues that she continued to have through her life right and then that's reflected in a late later painting that the museum only had a wallpaper copy of not an original painting that's one of the most famous paintings by her with it's a self-portrait with a, a, a spine replaced by by a ancient column classic kind of i think doric uh column and her body being distressed by some nails or something sharp. Her, her life was imbued with pain. And um, I think it's very symbolic. And I think it, she becomes this meta symbol of female um, suffrage and the legacy of like carrying the burden of being in a, in a shadow, but also glowing on its own time mm-hmm. timeline. 
and constantly negotiating, you know, her presence, her recognition, her legacy mm-hmm. with an image of someone yeah. that she loved. Yeah. And it's interesting because I saw that aspect of her work, the, the, the suffering of the body, the mortification of the body as a kind of intersection with uh, Nari Ward's work, because I was kind of thinking about what is there that kind of connects them. And that's one of the ways that I felt like their work interconnects because both of their provocations of the visceral through visual language, like for instance, Kahlo paints drops of blood, thorns, and the mortification of her own body. And Ward uses discarded found objects such as rope, wood, plastic, which he often burns, tears or binds, and in rare occasion actually incorporates meat into his work. I don't remember that salted fish work, that piece inside. Yeah, I remember that one. And all of these methods kind of create forms of the physical, physicality. So one is, you know, Fida's doing it as a painter and Nari's doing it as a kind of sculptor and creator right. of and, objects. And also, but. I think in Nari's work, uh, it's more about the decay and the, the forms, the structures that revolve around the body, the cosmology that uh, spurs from within the body psychology and then revolves around it, uh, involving all the, you know, memory-charged found objects. And speaking of Nari Ward, I'm going to uh, just quickly introduce um, his work and uh, the exhibition. Neri Ward was born in 1963 in Jamaica. He lives and works in New York. He's known for his sculptural installations composed of discarded material found and collected in his neighborhood in, uh, in the last 25 years in, in Harlem, East Harlem. Since the early 1990s, Ward has produced his works by ac- accumulating staggering amounts of those humble materials and repurposing them in consistently surprising ways. He has been purposed objects such as baby strollers, shopping carts, bottles, doors, television sets, cash registers, and shoelaces. Among others, uh, he uh, recontextualizes these objects in thought-provoking juxtapositions that create metaphorical meanings to confront social and political issues surrounding race, poverty, and consumer culture. Um, And his approach also evokes a variety of folk traditions and creative acts of recycling from Jamaica, where he was born, as well as the material textures of of Harlem. And I thought that there is uncovering connection to the geography and to the culture of these sites and the disparate communities and the tensions between them and the transformation in the ways he's activating these objects in his installations. And this comprehensive show, which I was personally very moved by, features, you know, the 25-year career um, and highlighting his status as a sculptor. Uh, but it's it's more so about the the trajectory of the progress of how he has activated these materials and these uh, these objects and the f- uh, like from the first presence at the new museum with the exhibition of large sculpture carpet angel from '92. Uh, right now it's uh, it's it's a roster of all of this uh, beautiful narrative of how his work evolved and coming back to the the topic we were talking about, which was the the folk references, recycling, you know, forms from from Jamaica. I found uh, a work that would uh, quote the kind of direct cultural reference, but uh, to more general like African sculptures. And that was his Unturing Escapement Fang from 2018, in which he used grandfather's clock and he inserted African statues inside of the clock. I thought that there is a connection between the way he activates found objects that belong directly, uh, just direct appropriation from the indigenous culture, and he inserts it like physically and literally into his sculpture, to Frida Kahlo, who was also collecting and obsessively collecting um, Mexican sculptures and um, objects 
of cultural heritage of of Mexico and embedding them into her sculptures and her paintings mm-hmm. and uh, photographing herself with them. And I thought uh, that th- th- there was this like uh, intersection in in that very moment. Mm-hmm. But uh, Nari Ward also uh, treated uh, the found objects from Harlem as if they were, you know, effigies, fetish objects that are charged with memory that that are more than just, um, you know, just yeah. trash. I, I also thought that there was this kind of crossover between the two in that, in the sense that both artists refer to histories and interweave references of these histories into contemporary dilemmas. Kahlo does this through her reference to the folk tradition that in such a large part defines her work. And I think Ward does this in many of his works where he specifically references histories such as his work Breathing Circle series from 2018, which uh, referenced the Underground Railroad through the circles of the breathing um, circle configurations. And in his work Untold from 2013, in which he references the folklore of the bottle tree, which has its origins from the Congo. Um, And that's that hanging bottle piece with the rope. He references race, diasporic, histories of trauma, survival, resistance, as well as economic difference. He does this by creating organic, abstract work that is evocative of brutality, which I think is really kind of his consistent stream that there's a kind of, it's um, bodily, but then also there's this either impending violence or past violence, brutality onto the object, like just through his manipulation of the objects of burning and twisting and that's where I feel his work really kind of comes for me to right, like to with the piece with the baseball bats, um, yeah, in which he obsessively stacks uh, baseball bats that he previously covered in in sugar and um, cotton, and he he makes this uh, and this mo- motive also resonates in Frida Kahlo's of building creating a, a form that resembles an altar piece, which is also, again, a religious reference, like very Catholic kind of reference. Like in the piece with uh, baseball bats, it just looks like an altar in itself. Yeah. To me, that work just um, visually really, I thought was kind of pointing to the artist Louise Nevelson, aesthetically speaking. And she also creates large sculptural wall pieces where she uses found objects such as architectural wood and boards that she cuts into intricate forms and paints in monochromatic tones of black. Typically that's her work. And I think there was a kind of homage, which I feel like he kind of does. He kind of pays homage to artists. And if one of the wall texts, it even like explicitly like said something to that effect. I can't remember which uh, work it was, but in the uh, wall text, it kind of, it referred that his past, um, oh yeah, here, the Iron Heavens from 1995, it cites Jack Witten and Lee Bontecu, whom Ward had come to know while in art school. So I believe they must have been his teachers. And that's, that's the piece you're talking about, the uh, one with the baseball bats. Yes, that's mm-hmm. the piece that I'm talking about. The um, Iron Heavens, uh, which is oven pans and iron uh, sterilized cotton and burned wooden bats from the collection of Jeffrey Deitch. And that's from uh, 95. And I, I thought just that the majestic feel of that found objects that become monumental, that that installation becomes the monument to the lost time, identity and whatever history embedded within these bats, whatever they were used for. Yeah. Because I see baseball bats sometimes left in these like open vacant lots. Um, mm-hmm. uh, that well, also are baseball bats are a kind of, buildings, um, you know, they're kind of a, a tool of potential violence. Exactly. And uh, he, he collects these, uh, you know, these objects that could be remnants of, you know, either something loving like 
baby stroller or something that could be a tool mm-hmm. of violence like like that. Um, however, the baby strollers, um, you know, are also used by homeless mm-hmm. people for carrying their belongings. So it's like yeah. there's like this amazing notion of repurposing of the already discarded. And then he, on the very end of that process, he finds this object and um, infuses it with almost religious, you know, pietish mm-hmm. um, aura, re-delivering that lost function and aura. Yeah, and I thought before. I think there's also this um, crossover, I think we kind of touched on it, about the way in which Ward and Kahlo refer to personal, you know, identity. So Kahlo's work is, is exemplified by uncompromising honesty, searching through the self, through self-portraiture, self-scrutiny and self-reflection. But in conjunction with that, uh, she's also referring to identity through distinct national histories. So like other artists within Mexico during the era in which she lived, Kahlo infuses her work with Mexicanidad, an identification with Mexico's distinct national history, traditions, culture, and natural environment, um, which was a kind of a trend at that time because of uh, you know national because of the form of national party. and and that too. Uh, but it kind well. of but you know Diego Rivera and uh, Orozco and uh, Sequeres they were all kind of a part of this. Um, national kind of it's, it's a form yeah, of nationalism it, it, really it was. but she did but yeah. she approached that in a much more personal and she reclaimed that way. for herself definitely the this uh, Mexi- she Mexicanidad appro- yeah. from like the Me- Mexicanidad being associated with you know with social with communism party because she joined it as a teenager in 1925 when she uh, met her you know Diego at the workers uh, union one of the meetings uh, I saw one of the pictures in which she, she was w- holding like a worker's hat in her hand. She was really identifying with that movement. You know, they, they led marches together, the Union of Mexican Technical Workers, painters, sculptures. And uh, that was happening during, you know, in conjunction with the mm-hmm. uh, Mexican revolutions of the, you know, early 1920s, in which, uh, during which the Ministry of Education launched Mexican muralist movement. And in 1922, uh, Kahlo uh, enrolled in National uh, Preparatory School where Diego Rivera was uh, working um, on his first commission. So her life and both her and Diego were imbued with, you know, with political, with like, the, you know, the, the, having this mission of, you know, social purpose of uh, having a mission of being socially useful. Mm-hmm. In, uh, you know. must have also been a kind of um, cohesive force in their relationship. The fact that they were both such adherent um, believers in, in the political movement. Right. That gave them this, the purpose and uh, agency that they were enacting on and having, you know, the, the romantic relationship yeah. grow on that. It wasn't that, that, that must have been, you know, really felt really like a, a legacy, like something really purposeful to pursue at the time. Yeah. But then, um, and of course, it was a very fraught time because yeah. Stalin had just taken power in the 30s. And actually, their home in Kaiokan, uh, the Blue House, became a gathering place for many leftist political and artistic figures of the time, such as Andre Breton, the filmmaker Sergei Eisenstein, and famously Leon Trotsky himself stayed with them. And I just thought I'd veer off here because when I looked this up, I was really, I was like, where did Trotsky die? Because I know there was assassination attempts, but one was successful. And he died a few blocks from their house because he bought a house and a few blocks from them. He was very close with uh, Diego and Kahlo. And uh, and uh, on this note, I'm going to make a short brief announcement. We are listening to Radio Free Brooklyn and the podcast I Art New York. Um, thanks for listening. So yeah, just if, for those who don't know who Leon Trotsky was, he was the former founder and leader of the Red Army. He was a communist revolutionary 
and became a fierce opponent of Stalin. He had to flee Russia to Mexico City with his wife in 1937 after Stalin killed his four children and other family members and threatened to have him killed as well. And his wife first lived at the Blue House and then later moved to a compound a few blocks away where he lived for a few years longer until he was himself assassinated in 1940. And I just want to say what a remarkable life. How scary and I know, yes. Terrible. Let's come back to Frida Kahlo's paintings yeah. for a second. Um, and uh, as far as painting movements of the time, she herself never really identified with any specific uh, movements or genres. However, when she had her uh, show at the Julian Levy Gallery, she never thought that she was a surrealist until Andre Breton said that. And I know that he was also frequent guest at mm-hmm. the Blue House. and But that was interesting to me that uh, she, she didn't really identify with that movement until she was uh, uh, pronounced and uh, pointed toward. So I, I, I wonder yeah. if I see that in her work. It's really crossing over or navigating between uh, naive painting, like Andre Rousseau, and realism and, and surrealism. What would you say about her paintings since they were so dismissed from the, from, from the exhibition? Yeah, I had also read that Breton described her work as surrealist and that she didn't agree with this categorization and stated that uh, Breton had thought that, quote, that I was a surrealist, but I wasn't. I never painted dreams. I painted my own reality, unquote. And I think that uh, maybe perhaps she's thinking about what's what comprises of surrealism in a very literal way in that they painted dreams and she did not. She, she did not accept that categorization. And I think it should be fine. Like even um, about Neri Works uh, uh, work, he also doesn't associate himself with with movements. I, I heard that somewhere. Well, maybe uh, I have to double check on that one. But uh, if if a male artist says that, mm-hmm. uh, it's accepted as, oh, yeah, it's just about, you know, it's just about the art. It's yeah. crossing bo- boundaries. But then uh, when, you know, she, she was, uh, you know, labeled as the surrealist. And there are definitely some references. You know, I, I see so many, you know, references to so many different things that she's really a hybrid She's really eclectic. I kind of see her personally. I, I think she's more rooted in using the language of folk tradition. And um, it might, you know, it looks like surrealism, but I, I can understand why she would um, not particularly agree with that categorization. Maybe because she was not part of it. Um as a female artist, she was excluded from these circles and she so she disassociated herself with it mm-hmm. because it was very life forming at the, at the time. And Andre Breton nominated her, so to speak, to be yeah. the surrealist. And maybe she just naturally opposed that by feeling like, well, um, are you going yeah. to Who knows? label me? Um, you know, may, maybe that that's what it was. But uh I think you're right. There's definitely. He also said of her work that her work is uh, as if a ribbon tied around a bomb, (laughs) which I think is so, so great because there is this prettifying element in her work where things look pretty, but then there's this really, you know, there's an intensity there, whether it's the look that she you know, her gaze looking out onto the viewer or the scenes that she constructs in her paintings or the the pain that she evokes through her paintings. There's definitely a, a kind of intensity that comes through, of course. Um, yes. But so she's using all of that, uh, the tradition, the heritage of the of the religious painting, the folk uh, painting, right. um, the surrealism, all of these. Uh, but then her gaze in the middle, the gaze is uh, directed at the viewer with stark, bold, fierce, uh, direct, possessive quality and, and power. 
that's uh, just disarming mm-hmm, emotionally mm-hmm. and and everything else looks like an icon it, it's like you know the uh, emotive uh, paintings that were actually uh, referenced uh, in um in the museum you know what else i thought was really beautiful on the exhibition it almost made the fact that they didn't have enough paintings in the show okay for me the fact that they included her body casts her corsets that were like surgical casts um, to help her with her spinal injury. First of all, I, on a side note, I can't imagine how these helped her spine, but I guess because they kept it somewhat immobile in any case. But um, because of her spine injury, she had several corsets made by doctors out of um, plaster bandages or bandages that were dipped in plaster to help stretch her spine and she painted them by looking in a mirror and painting them and they just were really haunting and beautiful and um, they were works of art. In fact, she kept them. She could have thrown them away, but she chose to keep them, which is a definite like artistic decision as to, uh, you know, that an artist makes as to what, what you keep as an artist or what you don't keep. And so they are works of art for the very fact that she painted on them and then decided to keep them as such. Yeah, I, I find them beautiful uh, pieces of sculpture. And considering her body being always at the center, in portraits, you know, um, she the, the, the central position of, of her body and, and her gaze and then um, uh, her dresses... So everything revolving around the body, including the corsets and the the plaster, uh, with with the image, just uh, just like in Mary's Ward uh, pieces, with the forms that revolve around the body or like are activated by the body, like the shopping cart or a piano, mm-hmm. um, uh, or a stroller, you know, all of these elements that then become incorporated into this like cosmic web of of network around the body that sustains the memory, preserves the memory as a monumental effigy. And she does effigies um, as well in her work in form of uh, painting. and Yeah, I and almost felt like that piece, because um, you're talking about the body and the relation to the body, I almost felt like his piece, Amazing Grace from 1993, was almost as if you were stepping into a body. I can't explain it, but just hear me out. But... When you step inside the room, first, it does have a kind of religious space. The lighting, for instance, the work is comprised of 280 abandoned baby strollers and a network of flattened fire hoses that are on the ground that create a pathway through the space. It's a darkened room and the baby strollers are arranged in a mandorla shape, which is kind of a art historical shape, otherwise known as the shape of the vesica Pisces, a term in geometry describing the shape created by two intersecting circles and is associated with the birth canal and is often found in depictions of Jesus in early Christian and medieval imagery. So it's very feminine. It's a very feminine language. That room is not only, you know, the reference to infants and babies and birth, but the very shape of the configuration that he lays these baby strollers out in then the darkening of the space it almost is like you are inside a womb absolutely i mean that's one of his most iconic works and it was first produced as part of his 1993 residency at the studio museum in harlem um, in response to the aids crisis and a drug epidemic of the early 1990s and it's this large-scale installation that um, I, I was just stunned by. Uh, it really evokes this like very religious feeling when you sp- step into that space. It feels like you're inside of a church, and you're looking at the 365 strollers, one for each day of a year, and the lighting and and the shape that evokes a vagina, this like um, uh, nested uh, shape with poses lined up uh, in the middle which are the conduit for water which could be also in biblical you know reference uh, an element of purification purifying um healing 
And echoing through that space was the audio recording of the gospel singer Mahalia Jackson, Amazing Grace on repeat. And the lyrics uh, speak about redemption and change and generating optimism and sense of hope um, as, you know, with most of his work. I mean, this installation explores themes uh, informed by materials and the gathering, the idea of gathering and all these empty strollers facing each other in very like stark, uh, quiet, almost frozen in, in, in time. Yeah, but at monument. the same time, as um, as much as it is kind of beautiful and serene, and it's also kind of ominous and a little dangerous feeling. Like, for instance, I don't know if you've ever been to the um, the Holocaust Museum in Washington D.C., but they have these rooms where they have the collection of confiscated eyeglasses and certain other personal items from. Uh, the Jews who passed through um, concentration camps, such as Buchenwald and uh, you know Auschwitz, and they have literally these rooms that are just piled with these um, artifacts of these uh, individuals who had uh, owned these uh, pieces. And I mean, I, I couldn't help but remember those um, installations because. Like this piece, those strollers had had a previous life. They had belonged to somebody. They had been used. And now they're compiled in this room and they are, you know, in a sense, like deadened objects. They are not, no longer, they're removed from their previous function in much the same way as those collected artifacts of the, the Jews who passed through concentration camps in the um, Holocaust Museum. Any case, I just thought I'd make that reference to his work because on the one hand, they are as equally they're optimistic as they are sad and melancholic or filled with a little bit of like trauma or danger. Well, definitely empty stroller that's dirty and left calling for interpretation evokes all sorts of different feelings. And um, I mean, I've been also thinking about these you know, empty lots and the geography of East Harlem and how how you find these things in real life and what are they used for and how are they activated, uh, you know, as like cards for, you know, homeless people. So, but they still, you know, they, they, they do evoke these larger feelings, uh, thoughts and uh, about uh, exist, existence, um, memory, the next chapter of what the next generation might be what's the next year, what's the 300, you know, 65 days forward will, will mean, where's that next generation going? Uh, so that in, in a way it's, it's like this collective mourning and also a collective reflection on the next, you know, the, mm. the next chapter Yeah. to, to me, and I especially also... with this hopeful healing song, um, you yeah. know, in the middle by right. Mahalia Jackson. I mean, that's just, it was so moving. I Actually, just sat it's, a, it's a really old song. It was written in the um, 1700s. Yeah, I just sat there and I just contemplated and I just, um, I, uh, it was just beautiful, very moving. Um, uh, so that, that was my Yeah, feeling. and I also really love that work, The um, Hunger Cradle from 1996, which is made out of yarn, rope, and found materials. And that is on the, I think it was on the third floor, the second floor. And when you stepped out of the elevator, it took up that back hallway. And it was like a network of yarn that almost was like a spider web. And it was colored yarn. And it was very, very, like, almost obsessive. There's that also element in his work of, like, um, obsessive uh, intertwining but it was done in a very almost geometric way. The, the way that the yarn was pinned from one end of the room to the other made these intersecting web-like systems that resembled the rhizome and uh, network theory. And it kind of, to me, it really evoked how the inner psyche in a physiological, like, way like if I could picture what the brain network would look like it would almost look like that and then he hung 
objects in this web as if they were like pockets of memory. Of course, I'm overlaying it with a very kind of concrete way of looking at it. It says many things to many people, I'm sure, but that's that's what I kind of took away from it. And I noticed in one of the side areas was a, because he had very disparate objects, like he had small things such as a lighter, he had um, a radiator, he had and like a iron cast, bed. he had an iron cast radiator, which if you know those New York City style iron cast radiators, they weigh like 400 pounds. They're really heavy. I have no idea how he had got yarn to hold up a 400 pound object, but somehow it was levitating above your head. And then he had other objects like a baby crib. And I noticed in one side he had this, it was like a box shape and it was a, a floor plan, like an architectural floor plan for an exhibition space. And in it, he had these little like postage stamp size, little pictures of the artwork. And one of them, I was like, that artwork, what is that? So I took a photo of it and just incidentally, by accident, I went to the Met like the next day and there was an exhibition of abstract expressionist like group show from the from the 40s till the 60s and second wave abstract expressionism. And I came across this work by an artist, Shakaya Booker, and I stopped in my tracks because I was like, oh, my God, that is exactly the image that was in that little postage stamp in the in his work, in the the um, the network of the yarn. And she makes works out of rubber car tires that she transforms through cutting and binding, creating quasi-organic objects that are really beautiful and organic looking, but also kind of dangerous and animalistic. And her process is also kind of similar to uh, wards and that uh, her process entails cutting, sewing, shredding, and binding. So, and I was like, oh my God, I think that he's kind of, in a sense, paying homage to her work in his own work. Now, of course, this is a theory because I can't, it didn't have her name on it, but, um, but I think that he's really looking to these female artists and female forms in a sense. You mean like the domestic use of the yarn? It is it is very uh, you know uh, crocheting and and um, and sewing is associated with like you know uh, domestic fe female activities, um, and he's using that you know the the, the yes. knitting with like he takes plastic bags and he obsessively you know turns that into like these very intricate almost crocheted forms. Yeah, using materials and cutting and sewing and binding. And Def also definitely. like the work of... Uh, I mean, that's really a uh, very, uh, I, I would say, surreal uh, reference to that artist. But if that's the work, that's that's really a... Uh, you got on the like the gist of, of a major fetishized effigy right there. <laughs> I mean, and it's... I think both in Frida Kahlo, she, uh, she does effigies in a different way. Also implementing objects, you know, from from the source heritage culture and... And uh, forms from like the motive paintings from like 19th century, um, and he does it in in this uh, different way, but still obsessive, uh, finding um, not only direct appropriations, but uh, you know, uh, found objects, everyday discarded objects, arte povera, you could say, and using das as this, um, you know sanctuizing that into the status of an effigy or a relic. Would you call these relics? I think like those are massive relics. Like this installation with the card that he did, the blue window brick wine, and also this other one, the savior and the crusader. All of these have, uh, yeah. all of these activate the, you know, the, the found object and elements of like his personal uh, belongings or other found lost belongings <clears throat> and turning them in, into this like massive relics. Yeah. And I, like, for instance, at that work Exodus from 1993, which was like a mandala like object hung on the wall made of twisted and bound fabric surrounded by dozens of uh, smaller bundles of fire hoses. 
I found it really comparable to the famous painting Rose um, by Jay DeFeo made between 1959 and 1966 because both are monochromatic layered surfaces creating texture both use a circle as a central focus point, circumventing traditional uh, forms of composition. Both are wall-hanging sculptural objects, although DeFeo's is also a painting, and both rely on specific lighting to enhance their sculptural qualities. I Again, I wonder, is he looking at these women artists who preceded him? Well, that's a really interesting observation. It, it, would, be, uh, it would be fun to unravel, unwind, uh, you know, the psychology behind these forms. Uh, for now, they, uh, they, they seem, you know, they, they do render action network theory, maybe, you know, the, some of the phenomenological ideas of, about like, you know, um, uh, network um, and then formations within the individuality within that network, like in uh, Bruno Latour, mm-hmm. the action network theory. And uh, Husserl, I see a little bit of Husserl mm-hmm. um, in, in him with the nothingness yeah. and, you know, and the phenomenology. Um, and then the, the Heideggerian techne and the spirit, the design and the techne, the tool and the constant re- referral back to like the pool of memory as being like this outer spirit, which is the history, you know, yeah. the legacy and the collective identity that he's constantly referencing and quoting but uh, I I definitely see him as you know this uh, almost like a martyr you know mm-hmm. a martyr he's almost like in a similar way to to Frida Kahlo uh, who also uh, Venson evokes that uh, you know idea of martyrology of like her being like the Christ of nations both Mexico and the U S trying to you know reconcile histories disparate histories and him. Uh, you know, uh, being like the agent of of the changes that were happening in East Harlem then, and the, the the dislocation, the displacements of communities, and bringing them back. I mean, his um, his installation, coming back to the installation, um, Amazing Grace. It was first housed in an abandoned fire station in Harlem before it was exhibited in, in a gallery or museum setting. So he really. He's uh, perceived as a missionary, and so was she. And I thought that those two, but for different reasons. Yeah. But he's just become such a uh, master of materials. That's one of the things that actually uh, separates Kahlo and Ward is that she's a 2D artist and he's a 3D artist, and he's making works that are very well, different. Well, she was making sculptures too, and she was implementing like uh, some of the, you know, collectible some of the sculptures and motive elements but she, she was making 3d works and considering the dresses and mm. you know being part of that also but uh, i i was just pointing to like them being the you know icons of like uh missionaries on different terms different worlds uh, that you know they were bridging over uh or, and are uh, in terms of uh, nary ward uh, bringing, you know, the, the poor um, found objects into a monument of, uh, of the uh, lost generation and projecting on, like, the, the, the future state. Yeah. One of his works incorporates the idea of collecting funds in order to give it to the community. So it's a side piece on that side um, hallway when you walk down and it's mm-hmm these uh, casts of Martin Luther King's, it's like a medallion. And the wall text read that a percentage of the proceeds go to giving back into like community uh, organizations. So he's really activating the space with a kind of activist um, agenda. Absolutely. And uh, in in the video that he had at, at the beginning of the show, uh, which act, which involves, a family of pol- police uh, and NYPD representative with uh, his sons, and um, that was a community involving a community. He reached out to a community, you know, uh, to enroll not actors but people from from his own networks 
local networks and that's how he conducts all of his projects the time-based projects the video uh, projects which I which I find really healing and um, and engaging you know in terms of um, uh, local like in local community involvement mm-hmm. um, I think as far as the comprehensive aspect the new museum show was definitely more compelling in terms of rep- representing the legacy of of uh, Nary works uh, uh, in terms of uh, representing Nary Ward's uh, uh, you know uh, work as opposed to just ephemera about and you know details about life that are not important like they are in case of Frida Kahlo's uh, exhibition at the Brooklyn Museum. But both exhibitions are on view still, and you can see for yourself and um, uh, and uh, judge for yourself and see see what you find interesting. Nary Ward, We the People, is on view through May 26. It's curated by Gary Carrion Murayari and Helga Christofferson, as well as Massimiliano Gioni and uh, Elise Nissan. And um, Frida Kahlo, Appearances Can Be Deceiving, curated by Sirke Henestrosa, is up through May 12th. And it's the first exhibition in the U.S. supposedly to display a collection of her clothing and other personal possessions. So I think it, by its default, uh, it was meant to be more about uh, her biography and, and mm-hmm. supporting objects of her life and legacy rather than uh, paintings, which was disappointing to me. And I, I think, think it would be us. an amazing show for like the Met's Costume Institute or yeah. the museum at FIT. Yeah. But I feel like in an art context, I guess it diffuses it or, you know, like it needs to be elevated to that level. Like it just should be only the clothes or something. I don't know. It's a really interesting question. I enjoyed it. I just felt I expected something different, actually. I expected paintings. I expected paintings <laughs> as well. So <laughs> let's see when. Uh, but like I said, seeing those corsets really made up for a lot. Because I didn't know those existed and I certainly had never seen them before. And you know what's also inter- interesting uh, is like the, the figures that are incorporated into her, um, you know, sculptures that are the indigenous uh, stone sculptures, you know, the West Mexican ceramics and figure from the Mesoamerican cultures. They are part of the Brooklyn Museum's permanent, you know, collection. And I I didn't see enough of informed reference about them other than this, uh, like, um, vitrine that kind of just listed a section of these. But uh, and besides of a small text about, the, you know, the Mexi- Mexicanidad and the use of folklore, uh, which was very, very brief uh, reference, I did not see a- any, you know, compelling reference to to that whole heritage and culture, which was so, you know, her work was so informed by. Um, so not only paintings, but just in terms of visual arts in general, the show the show was really lacking was really shortcoming i mean we yeah. do, we do forget she she was born in 1907 she would have been 112 today so mexico city and the era that she came of age in was a completely different world which i do think that the exhibition did try to fill those gaps by you know presenting these ephemeral objects to help kind of fill in the gaps and define the space that she that she was influenced by um absolutely i think i think that we touched on key important variables that define the show that we felt were relevant and uh, that we felt connected with again you know we didn't touch on everything we couldn't we can't unpack the the whole myriad of references that are in these exhibitions but uh, feel free to comment on um, you know, on the on our review on our Facebook page, which is coming up, and uh, leave comments on Radio Free Brooklyn, which is uh, generously hosting our I Art New York podcast. Please remember that uh, Radio Free Brooklyn is a 501c3 non-for-profit organization whose mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, and free expression. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. 
So uh, to help support our mission, please uh, make a one-time donation or monthly pledge at radiofreebrooklyn.org slash donate. Thank you so much, Rebecca. That was great. Looking forward to the next episode. And uh, we are ending with Castle Black, Seeing in Blue. And we were beginning with The Broken Bright Star by Castle Black. They are touring right now. They'll be back in May in New York City. 